I often say venture investing is investing, but honestly, I think it's relationship management. There's so mm -hmm. many people that I'm talking to and people are, you know, emotional people have their ups and downs. And I, yeah. because I'm talking to so many different people on every single day, it can be very jarring. Um, Hi, baby. Hi. Hey, y'all. We have an episode today with Jeremy Brown. Jeremy was our very first Power Hour guest. So thank you for trusting and coming on to Power Hour. I had such a great conversation with you. I love the energy. Like, Jeremy, you are just a, a beautiful soul and amazing human being. And I, I really enjoyed the authenticity of this interview. Yeah, Jeremy, I feel if I had to distill to one word, I would call him magic. He's just got the best energy. Uh, and today we really dove into his journey into venture capital. So for those of you looking to enter the space, lots of tidbits here for you. Find Jeremy, kind of get in touch and try and see if you get a coffee chat with him. He's a very busy man. So he's a partner at Creator Fund and they look at deep tech investments. He tells us, for instance, if you are a rock star PhD at Oxford or any other fabulous institution, why you should go with them. Uh, and he also talks about his journey, right, into VC. So he started out with geophysics and took that all the way through a PhD. And we also chat about Beyonce and lots of other things such as getting more diversity in this in the field. So enjoy y'all. This was fun. Enjoy. Cool. All right. <laughs> all right. So you were telling me about your fun plans last night. So today you woke up tired. What did you do today? Um, I had a British roast for lunch. What is that? It's, it's the, like one of the best things about living in the UK. It's, this, <laughs> it's like meat and like horseradish sauce with gravy and they have ah. cabbage and you know, the, the bread Very that's nice. made from like animal meat. I mean, it's, it's so Wait, unhealthy. bread from animal meat? Like they like get the animal fat and they turn it into yeah. some type of bread. I don't know. Wow. A lot of people, I mean, it's very elaborate, but it's at it every feels, pub. Mm, it feels like exactly what you need after a night out, after yeah. a wild night out. So that, oh, I, oh. so. <laughs> so good, so good. <laughs> cured, cured you, maybe gave you some more energy. <laughs> yeah. No, it did. It's like, I was like, I just want a food coma. So I did it yeah. like around 3 p.m. So, yeah. you know, Amazing. I was like, okay, you know, make sure so the coma is over for the podcast. I love it. I love it. You're ready. And this brings me to, again, to this topic, which I know you love so dearly is I'll invite you again to Austin. I keep telling you, you got to come. I'm coming. Visit. Oh, I'm coming. <laughs> because we have this spot called Terry Black's that's like five minute walk from us that people just rave about being the best barbecue. And what you just described reminds me, feels like a Terry Black's vibe. So you got to come out. We got to go out on a Saturday. Oh. We got lots of great oh, clubs yeah. around here. And then we do a Sunday Terry Black's. Oh my gosh. I mean, I'll definitely be in the US in December. Oh, great. Yeah. So perfect. We'll plan it yeah. out. Yeah. And I'm planning, I'm planning summer, like New York next summer as well for Fire Island. So, um, so, so whenever I'm in the US, I always have to make my rounds anyway. So yes, yes. And we, we will come visit you in London. So this morning, I uh, woke up, went and grabbed my usual morning coffee. And I'd been hearing so much about Beyonce's latest album, 
renaissance, which I'm so late to the game, but you know, we were wedding planning all year and we've had all these travels. And so that's my excuse, but I listened to it for the first time this morning. She has a song on there that's super fire, classic Beyonce sassy form. The cover song. You told me the cover song. Break my soul. No, and that's it, the one I'm talking oh, about. Oh, that's the one. Oh, that, oh, that <laughs> yeah, is the one you're talking about. It's so yeah. Good. Oh, yeah. Break my soul. So that's the one yeah. I know because it's on the radio. Everyone's yeah. listening to it. I've been to like a few dance um, like parties in the summer where it comes on and everyone screams and raves and says, yeah, you know. Um, yeah. No, it's a great, I mean, it's a great song. I think her whole album, I think, is her coming out with a new album after a while. And then this whole. I guess, you know, narrative or story around kind of just, you know, building resilience. I think that's very yeah. much Beyonce. So I think she yeah. just builds on, on that about herself and all totally. of her struggles and everyone else's yeah. for that matter. Which is so nice. That's so funny that I didn't realize that that was her cover song. This just shows you how big my rock is that I live under and why I need you <laughs> and friends more to tell me you gotta <laughs> listen to this. Um, but I love that that's the one that I fell in love with too. Saying, all right, so Jeremy, we are discussing career tracks, mm. and I just find your path so so fascinating. Like, I personally don't know, and well, again, I don't know that many people that have gone from getting a PhD and then transitioning into venture, and something I'm really curious to learn about from you. So, would love to dig into it. And I was thinking maybe we could start from the beginning, kind of what got you interested in even the PhD, and why geophysics, and why a PhD. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of think about that in my life, how that even happened. Um, and I mean, I really I think it started from growing up in Colorado because mm -hmm. I grew up outside of Denver. And, you know, if you've been there, it's one of the most beautiful places I think you yes, can grow up. Yes, we want to move there. Yeah, uh, everyone so wants to move there. So I'm saying don't <laughs> move there because then property prices are just going to become like California. Okay, so, okay, but like okay, every, okay but we got every... you, we got you. <laughs> but everyone does want to move there because it is a, an amazing place to grow up and the nature's great and the beauty. So just seeing the mountains every single day, you know, going mm -hmm. home from, from school or, you know, just driving around town. I always had these like questions of like to my mom, like, oh, like, how did this happen? How did this like yeah. mountain get here? What are these rock formations? And my parents aren't, um, you know, scientists, so yeah. they didn't have they didn't have the answer to the question. Um, <laughs> They're so, like, you know, boy, I was just, you're, was like, you just asked too many questions. Go read a book or something. <laughs> yeah, and I was just, I was just, I was so curious about it. And so, um, you know, one of the universities in the Denver area, a very good, very small engineering school, Colorado School mm -hmm. Mines. I went when I was, mm -hmm. I don't know, sometime in high school to one of their perspective student things and i walked past this geophysics booth and it was just mm -hmm. like it was kind of love at first sight i was like wow this is literally exactly what i want to study there was like no hesitation wow. yeah um it's like this is really cool i have no idea what that means in terms of a career but yeah. you know it, i'm just so fascinated i just want to learn about what this is um yeah not a, not a lot of schools offer it so i was like yeah what the hell like i'm just gonna do it wow. you know hope for the best and just learn and then you know, it just took me into this whole bachelor's, master, master's at Stanford. And I went to Stanford mm -hmm. to start my PhD in geophysics because I loved it yeah. so much. that I was like, wait, I want to keep wait, going. Wait, let's pause. First yeah. of all, I think that that's what a beautiful story of you grew up so excited about this. Like 
asking questions about it. And then it sounds like you kind of stumbled onto it at college. I feel like that's so lucky, right? That you ended up going to a school that offered this, but almost a part of me is thinking kind of makes sense that this engineering school in Colorado offered this program, right? Like as you describe the environment with all the mountains and the beautiful nature, but then you had this opportunity that you took and then you enjoyed it, which I think doesn't always happen. What was it about geophysics that you loved so much and so much so that you wanted to continue and pursue? Because I studied chemical engineering in undergrad, for instance, but I didn't consider doing a master's and a PhD in chemical engineering. So what was it about it for you? Um, the, it was, things were unsolved in my brain, you know, finishing the bachelor's degree. And so I, you know, I think you get the base, um, understanding of like, you know, the physics of the earth, because that's what geophysics is. But then, you know, something about also like getting into a Stanford PhD program and something that Mm -hmm. I love just was very, very appealing and it was funded and it just seemed like it'd be a great four five, six, seven. I didn't know what I was getting myself into years mm-hmm. to just research and learn. And so I was just like, that's just like a really great opportunity. And, you know, I think, I think I was like, I think, I think the, the punchline there is pursuing passions, which I think mm-hmm. now people are kind of being told to study this or told to study that, to have, you know, this type of career. I see why, you know, some people say that, but on the, on the other hand, I think if you just have a, a passion for something and pursue it, like, you know, with earnest, you'll figure things out along the way. Um, and so if I could go back in time and say that to myself, you know, with starting something with no idea where it would be in 10 or 15 years, that's what I would tell myself to just chill and like, just pursue the passion and learn. You know, damn, Jeremy, I'm getting goosebumps as you say that, because it's so obvious that you truly were <laughs> pursuing your passion. I can picture young Jeremy, excited, wide eyed, filled with wonder, just really interested to learn. And like you said, you had questions that were unanswered. And I think that's sadly rarer these days. So what, what great advice. And then I, I heard you say it was funded. So sounds like financial aid was something that was also important to you. And sounds like that's something that maybe you were looking for. Was that easier, relatively easier to get in a PhD track? Also Stanford's yeah. an amazing school. So congrats. That's huge. What was that process like for you? Yeah. So at least at, you know, at Stanford, if you get accepted to a PhD program, you're funded. For that, okay. for that PhD, which means okay. your tuition's covered and you receive a, an annual stipend, a living stipend, which I would say at the time it oh, was, nice. it was enough living in Palo Alto, which is quite expensive, but I'd never mm-hmm. felt like it was not enough, you know? Um, and so, um, I couldn't go and buy a home in San Francisco, of course, but in terms yeah, of being able to some enjoy millionaires can't go, buy yeah, home. yeah. <laughs> like... but you know, making rent, enjoying time with friends, you know, yeah. all that, all that was, was, was really, really great. I mean, I just want to also say one thing I didn't mention in terms of pursuing the PhD. I think the one thing that was very critical there was my PhD advisor. So, I mean, this this individual, um, Mark Zoback, I think he just fundamentally believed in me. And shout so, out to Mark. Yeah. So I think I think that's a big part of it too. Um, yeah. Passion and pursuing it, but there was definitely you know one person in particular that kind of believed in me and guided me mm-hmm. through that whole journey. Uh, instrumental in that. So if I didn't have that, for example, you know, I don't know how much the passion would have, you know, taken me without someone sort of, you know, lifting or pushing you, you know, to really succeed Mm -hmm. or, you know, achieve, you know, said goal. Um, And so, yeah, I think, I think it was a combination of both when I think about it. That's beautiful. I feel like it always comes down to just 
hard work, lots of hard work on your part, obviously, but then also these elements that you're mentioning, someone believing in you, pulling you up, Stanford giving you a shot, like your undergraduate school giving you a shot, you being curious. It's almost like you have this perfect mix of chemicals in this box that you shake up that, that produce magic, the magic that you are. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, could explode, but that's okay, too. Or could explode, but that's great. No, no, no. Yeah, you hit some roadblocks roadblocks along the way. That's all right. It's all good. All right. So then you made it to Stanford and you were pursuing your PhD. How did that translate into your interest in the MBA program and then eventually venture capital? Yeah. So, I mean, it's this, you know, story for me of like cognitive dissonance to the extreme. Because yeah. it's like, I loved research. I loved my PhD program, um, you know, just digging into a problem and becoming an expert in it. Um, mm-hmm. But it, but on the other hand, I just, it never fully satisfied me in terms of, you know, my personality, so to speak. So, yeah. you know, sitting in a lab or on the computer, building a model, um, you know, it's a very slow process research you know, takes years to you know, develop your thesis and your dissertation. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm a very kind of, you know, fast moving person. I know. I just like, you know, do, 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 do. And so it just wasn't like doing it for me in that sense. Really, really loved it. It was a great time in life. But I'm a very, I'm a, you know, when you look at and take MBTI, I'm like as strong of a mm-hmm. me as you can like think of. I'm very, very mm-hmm. extroverted. And, yeah. you know, the research world doesn't necessarily translate into that level of extrovertedness or extrovert nature that I have about myself or personality. So I was yeah. like, okay, you know, you know, after, after my PhD, I moved to the Netherlands and I worked in product for a while. Mm-hmm. And that was like a really great time because I was more involved with teamwork. You know, we were building really cool software products. I got more of a, a day-to-day interaction that was not just myself, which mm-hmm. oftentimes with a PhD it is. And I just realized, I was like, this is really cool. but it was also quite niche, you know, and mm-hmm. I, that was by nature of doing a PhD, you do kind of pigeonhole yourself into a field. Yeah. So if you're not, not really excited about that field and think you will be for a very long time, you know, I think at some point I was like, well, maybe I went too far. Um, and how do I, <laughs> how do I think about like backtracking? How do I rein it back? <laughs> and yeah, like, you know, broaden my scope about the world. And that's how I thought, you know, the MBA just led me there. Cause I was like, well, yeah. I get to hang out with very fun, extroverted, ambitious people that yeah. just have an opinion about everything about the world, you know, for two yeah. years. And then yeah. it just, it just sets you up to explore. Stanford yeah. DSP is a great place where you can self, where you can reflect on yourself. You can develop tools to become more an effective leader, to enhance mm-hmm. that EQ, to really sort of think about how, you know, people are perceiving you versus you should be interacting with other people. A side of myself that hadn't really had an opportunity to develop, I would say, over the Mm -hmm. course of my career so far. And that was the motivation for doing it. So I just want to say, because this is how I met you, right? At Stanford Business School, Graduate School of Business. I just, I would have never guessed in a thousand years that you had been a PhD student. (laughs) (laughs) You were just just so fun. So like, so like you were, you were like sparkles, you know what I mean? Just running around with a high top, you know, this guy just like running around dancing. (laughs) Yeah, you were like dance, but you always had this big smile on your face. You had this beautiful laugh and just so kind and warm and happy. And not that I don't think PhD students are happy, but I would expect, uh, yeah, you were just not what I expected. And so this was kind of my first impression of you. It was like, whoa, really? Um, 
But getting back to what you were just describing, you decided to move to the Netherlands. And like I said, you kind of lived in seven plus countries. I don't even know if you can keep track of how many places you've lived in. So you were working in, and then you, why did you decide Netherlands? Were you interested in exploring different places? Was it something about the geography there? Uh, was it something specific to the research you were doing? How did that happen? Oh, yeah. No, that's a really good question. I think I kind of glossed over it. But, you know, I, and I also didn't mention that I did my exchange. I did I had an opportunity to, during my bachelor's in my senior year to do an yeah. a, a exchange semester in the Netherlands at TU Delft. Mm, and okay. so that was my first time of being on the ground in that country. And I fell in love with it, um, just the culture and the people. Um, and so when I had an opportunity to pick between the Netherlands and moving to Houston for this role mm. outside of my PhD, I was, I was, you know, it's like, I want to live in the Netherlands. Um, you know, just, I want to move back there. It's familiar, uh, familiar enough. Also, I'm just, I'm just a very global person. I think, I think I resonate the most with people that just have a very global view about the world and aren't very narrow and, and kind of their culture. And so for me, it's always been like the intent to like build a global career, um, in mm -hmm. whatever, in whatever way, way that meant. Why like do you, you think that is? Yeah. Why is that something that's important to you? Um, I mean, you know, my mom says to me, my first word was plain. I don't know if that's true. But oh, that's she, cool. She, so, 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 I mean, maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe that's the simple answer. I was just yeah. like, born to do it. <laughs> born to fly, baby. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's literally, I think, a thrill um, because it's yeah. just, I don't know, people and cultures just fascinate me. And I, I loved growing up into the U, in the U.S., I think mm -hmm. even in the U.S., you can have a very strong sort of U.S. dominant culture, um, mm -hmm. American dominant culture in terms of way of thinking, in terms of even like way of communicating, um, mm -hmm. which is is great. I love the U.S., but having yeah. that different perspectives is just like enabled me to grow and, and also yeah. enabled me to, I think, connect with people a lot easier than maybe other people can. Yeah. I want to bring up, Jeremy, you are a Black gay man. When you say about culture and the openness to culture, I find you're one of the most open people that I know. And I'm curious, do you feel like that influenced you at all in terms of this global perspective and wanting to learn so much about other people? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think being kind of, you know, dual minority or double minority. Um, hey, me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's kind of you, you're always, I think, very self-aware that you yeah. know, to really make strides or to succeed, you know, people I think are going to be having the microscope on you. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, if you make a mistake, it's more accentuated or it's like, yeah, I knew that was going to be the case where, mm -hmm. you know, so I think, I think in that case, it was kind of just being, I always told myself when like, I was kind of always taught to like go the extra mile um, in mm. terms of, you know, building, you know, a career or presence in this world that's kind of unmatched. And so, you yeah. know, with this PhD and this MBA and this, and this global, you know, mindset, having the opportunity to live in a lot of different um, countries, you know, that's just enabled me then, you know, at this point being, you know, in my mid thirties to have a mm -hmm. platform to, mm -hmm. that no one can like, you know, um, you know, disagree with, or that no one can really or not, not a platform, a platform to educate others and be inspiring to others, but a um, sort of an accomplishment level where no one can like sort of, you know, um, yeah. tell me, tell me otherwise that you can't do this or you can't do that. Because time and time yeah. again, I've been able to demonstrate that I can. So I think my entire life to date has been trying to, trying to, and, you know, still in the process of doing 
um, mm-hmm. get to a point that um, that I can that I can really you know stand on my own two feet um, and, yeah. and have to put up with the BS that the world sometimes throws at you. It's funny because I think of you as one of the most accomplished people and it's fascinating how much you have to go through or deal with the boxes that people or the world may want to put you in. And I think you're such a great example of how that's not the case. All right. So back to the Netherlands and sounds like you wanted to have more breath. So you thought about business school. How was that for you? And how did that translate into your excitement about venture capital? Uh, Business school was overwhelming. Um, yeah, me too. It's a huge, it's a huge blur to be honest. Um, unfortunately with Stanford business school, it's two years. A lot of European mm-hmm. business schools are one. I can't imagine mm-hmm. doing a business school degree in, in 10 months. Um, no. so fortunately you have two years. The first year I was just so overwhelmed because it's, I thought I was extroverted until I went to business school. That's what I tell people <laughs> sometimes. It's like, you know, so much people, so many small group dinners, you're trying to get to know 400 people in a very, very short amount of time. And so I think it was socially exhausting. It was mentally Mm -hmm. exhausting. Um, But then, you know, looking back, it was just kind of this really exceptional time in life um, where you just build, you know, lifelong friendships as well as a a network that's just, and a community that's just very, very, very supportive. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. business school was intense. It was intense in a way that I didn't think it would be intense. And, and while I was there, you know, I was trying to, you know, think about what, what caters to all my interests. So my love of, you know, science and engineering, but, you know, my love of people and being very people oriented, that mm-hmm. was a conversation I was always having with myself is if I'm going to have a career that I'm going to like and really, really enjoy, it has to kind of merge, you know, these things. Um, and that's, that's where I stumbled on, on, on venture. I knew known about it before, but I didn't really know. I thought it was like inaccessible. Yeah. You know, Why did when you I think was, it was inaccessible? Because I didn't have the background for it. Um, okay. I think, you know, being a PhD, I didn't know anything about business or invest. Mm-hmm. They knew it was always really appealing. Mm-hmm. I thought like, always like, that would be a really cool career, but you know, maybe I just, I don't have the, the background or experience or even would have no idea how, how to do it or yeah. what I would be doing and how to get hire, started. who would hire me. Yeah. So I think the MBA just, you know, really set me up well for that. Being in Silicon Valley, you know, yeah. a lot of people coming out of the business school end up in venture or yeah. worked in venture before going to business school. So there's just mm-hmm. a lot of people you could just speak to and yeah. get their perspectives. What was, what was cool about it for you? You mentioned this always seemed like a cool career. What, what was yeah. so enticing about it to you? So, you know, what, what I'm doing now, um, you know, we invest in deep tech, which is essentially any type of company um, that needs mm-hmm. a, a co-founder that has some type of science or engineering expertise. Um, and so what that means for me is I'm talking to, you know, scientists and engineers that are looking mm-hmm. to commercialize, you know, really cool technology or build really cool products that, you know, are going to fundamentally change the world, you know, from the hard science perspective or from, from the artificial intelligence ML perspective, like applications mm-hmm. that are going to digitize, you know, said industry. And so that's kind of catering that caters to my science side. And then, um, you know, venture capital, um, you know, it's just, you're talking to a lot of people, you're assessing a lot of different companies, you're building, you know, this pattern recognition across markets, across, you know, so many different things. And to do that, you're just talking to a lot of people Um, and, you know, stakeholder management is very important on the fund side, but then 
also, you know, really assessing founders and the merits of, you know, a company if it should be, you know, backed with, mm-hmm. with, with capital, um, you know, from our fund. And so yeah. I often say, and I didn't realize this until having been a venture investor for some time, I joke that venture investing, because we're, I mean, we're, it's early stage. So early stage, yeah. less about like in private equity, the financial model, it's more so about the product technology and who's building that. That's in a day out, you know, yeah, what I'm thinking about when I'm talking to a company. I often say venture investing it is investing, but honestly, I think it's relationship management. There's so mm-hmm. many people that I'm talking to and people are, you know, emotional people have their ups and downs. And I, yeah. because I'm talking to so many different people on every single day, it can be very jarring. Um, and you come in you know, contact with so many different personality types and what have you. And so yeah. I, I think for me, what I love about venture and how I stumbled on it, what, you know, what I thought it would be more or less is, it's very much a relationship business. But then because we invest in deep technology startups, I just get to nerd out on really cool science and engineering trends. Wow, that feels like such a great fit for you, Jeremy. Not only are you looking at the science behind companies, but even more so you're building really. So I love people and I know how much you love people too. And just talking to people and getting to know them. And you just told us how big of an extrovert you are. And this feels like such a perfect, perfect match for you. Again, I feel like it's really hard to find what it is that you love so much. And I think that's very fortunate for you. And so it sounds like, how, how did you come across this fund? Would you say all VCs are similar for people that are looking to get into venture? How can someone figure out their path? Yeah, I think part of it was luck and part of it was um, positioning myself for it. Mm-hmm. And so on one hand, you, you'll hear people say, and I'll be very, I'll give my very strong opinion on this. You'll right. hear people say, you know, there are multiple paths into venture capital, which is very true. Mm-hmm. There's really mm-hmm. leading journalists that, you know, eventually pivoted into it. People that yeah. were, you know, working at the White House and eventually became VCs, you know, near scientists. So that's very, very true. Um, I do think there's a huge hurdle when you look at the breakdown, like in the U.S. of the VC industry mm-hmm. who went to a Stanford or Harvard versus mm-hmm. not, or a top mm-hmm. institution, it's still very, very dominated by a few institutions. And so um, not to say that it's not possible, 100% it is, but the way it's shaped up now, people just like to hire something they're familiar with. And so I think for me, it was part maybe luck, but also you know being and having the opportunity to have been accepted to Stanford for business school, I think really positioned me the strongest of any of those maybe things, you know, luck versus not to like set myself up to, to break into the industry. I think there was definitely be other ways that I, I could have done that. Um, and there's so many different ways into venture, but I think just by the sheer network, um, that I had access to, that Mm -hmm. was an enabling factor for me to, you know, get that, get my feet wet. Um, and so when I, you know, I oftentimes get messages from people like on LinkedIn and say, how do I break into venture? Like young people. Yeah. And I say, you know, you can go the, you know, high growth startup route because that's very, very great for early stage investing to have that experience. But I often say, you know, look into top tier business schools because I think the amount of, of, you know, network there, but also what you learn in terms of being an effective venture investor, I think is is really great. I think it's still, I don't like how the industry looks in terms of where people, you know, come from. 
And yeah. so that's, you know, a barrier I hope to break down in my career in the future as, as I, you know, continue my career in the venture world. But I do think it's still a really strong avenue in which to break in. I was just thinking, as you were saying, it breaks my heart a little bit, rings of this boys club or whatever, mm -hmm. girls club now, or Ivy League club or whatnot. And what are ways that we can all give folks more opportunity? Because I didn't come from a background that was of that sort. I was given a chance and opportunity like you were to get into Stanford, but we all know that there's a ton of luck there too. And, and yeah. another scenario, I wouldn't have gotten accepted and had yeah. access to this network, which we're both so grateful for. So I, I, I love I, hearing. I, I think that's less talked about. Um, yeah. So it's, I think within those communities, there's a lot of effort making sure there's more representation in venture, like with mm -hmm. for women, for minorities, for LGBTQ, people that identify as such. Um, mm -hmm. But they're all coming still from like kind of the same institutions. So I think on yeah. one hand, there's a lot of strides being made in terms of how do we diversify this industry in one way or in a few yeah. ways, you know, we want more representation. And I think that's great. But it's not mm -hmm. full representation in terms of how does, you know, an African-American female at, you know, the University of Illinois break into venture. Um, right. You know, that's that's a different hurdle that I, I think is like less talked about. In hiring, we can look out for minorities and underrepresented people. And to your point, there's so much more work to be done there. And it starts with acknowledging and identifying that this is something that needs to be worked on. Um all right. So specifically, how did you get to Creator Fund where you're at today? Yeah. So I would say, I think the, the moral of the story that I'm about to tell is, um, you know, always when you meet people in life, you never know where that relationship leads you. Um, and that's yeah. kind of, that's how I ended up at Creator Fund, to be honest. So after, um, after business school, I had an opportunity yeah. to work at a venture fund slash accelerator um, in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley for about, for about eight or nine months. Mm -hmm. Um, and me being kind of very globally minded and, and a Europhile self, self-proclaimed Europhile. I love everything <laughs> about Europe and the people. I love the, that. I'm a culture. Europhile too then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the people, the culture, it's just so yes. much, you know, the food, you know, and the, yeah, the food know, is the, so good. Um, <laughs> it's like always like looking at what opportunity would be to, you know, move back abroad move. and yeah. very much so, you know, a gentleman that graduated from um, Stanford Business School, you know, probably 10 to 15 years before I did, mm -hmm. was a mentor in many ways, would give me, you know, advice um, um, about, you know, venture and, and just career. And this individual was in the process of helping to set up a fund in Berlin. Um, mm -hmm. And so with, mm -hmm. with those conversations I was having with him, you know, one day I was, I just, you know, said like, actually, I'm quite interested. Once you, you know, bring on someone more junior, I would love to, you know, be considered for you know, for that, I've been looking to move, you know, back to Berlin um, yeah. and doing what you do, you know, pre-COVID, you know, I was like yeah. thinking, I'm just going to jump on a plane and, and try to meet him to like really sort of put forth the seriousness of, of this. Yeah. And then that was probably in, in a December and I started working at that fund in May. Um, wow. And so it was, it was from that connection and just that relationship mm -hmm. and having built that over, you know, several you know months that enabled me to move back abroad to continue yeah. my my journey in the venture world, um, and then one of our classmates, uh, who's named you know, Jamie McFarland, um, he shout out he, to Jamie, shout out to Jamie. He started Creator <laughs> Fund, you know, three years back. Um, mm -hmm. And what's what's really funny is we weren't that close at, at business school. You know, we we had a yeah. we had a few interactions. I remember close to the time of graduating from business school, 
we were in the back of an Uber and he was mm-hmm. telling me about his plans of setting up this fund. And I like, yeah. you know, I was listening like, and, you know, I didn't really think anything of you. it. Like, I was like, yeah. that's cool. You know, yeah. but I didn't really think anything of it that, you know, five years later, I would be, I'd be, I'd be working alongside of him as a partner in the fund. And so, you know, what's really funny is, and what's, what's even funnier about this story is, you know, I had that interaction and about, I don't know, two years later when I was in Berlin, I was flying to London mm-hmm. for a business trip. It was really early in the morning. It was like 7.30 a.m. I was walking to check into my hotel and I see Jamie on yeah. the street. I see Jamie on the street. He's like walking and, and ready like, to cross the street. What are you doing here? And I'm like, hey. And you know, I look, I look out his on his um, shirt, and he had like this pen that said, yeah. you know, Jamie McFarland for MP or something." And I was like, "Where are you going?" He's like, "I'm going to one of my rallies." I was like, "Wait, what?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm ready to be an MP." I was like, I was like "What?" What? I was like, I was like, "What is going on right now?" I was like, "What is going on?" You know, am I dreaming? What's happening? <laughs> I was like, "Great to run into you randomly on the street." I'm going rally. to your rally. Yeah, I was like, I was like, okay, good luck. Um, you know, then, you know, you didn't you win the seat, and he's still you know building Creator Fund. Fortunately for me, yes, <laughs> because yes. when he was hiring for an investment partner, um, yeah, you know, earlier this year, I reached out yeah. and said, I'm, "I'm actually quite interested," <clears throat> and he said, "Yeah, no, it'd be great to work together." And you know, it's very Amazing. much in the building and scaling mode with the fund, which I think is very, very exciting because I want to, mm-hmm. I love building um, and it's, yes. you know, we're building, but more so on the fund side, mm-hmm. which I think was just really exciting. And then having the opportunity to move over to London as well, too, which is a city yeah. I always loved. It kind of just checked so many boxes for me. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. So, you know, Rishi Sunak, who was just in the running, you, he's a GSP alum as well. So I love all these GSP like, alums. I hope we'll have the prime minister of the UK one day soon. And good for us that Jamie lost that seat and is still building Creator Fund, but we'll still support his political ambitions for the future. hundred um, percent. Okay. So you're here and we've obviously caught up a bit on how it's going and I'm so excited for you both. But one of the things that really stood out to me in kind of how you work together is you mentioned and like working together is challenging, right? This is your partner. You're working together every day. Obviously conflicts come up. And I just love what you mentioned to me about how you have sessions where you go over with each other, what worked well, what didn't work well. Tell me about kind of some of the things that you think are important in building a successful relationship with a co-founder or a partner. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the courses, a signature course at Stanford Business School, everyone calls it touchy Billy. It's, it's actually called interpersonal (laughs) dynamics. I guess it's an experiential course, but it really helps you think about how do I engage with other people um, without, Mm -hmm. you know, offending them or making them defensive and making sure my thoughts and my sensitivities are are communicated or or understood. So you do, you know, the entire course, like really sort of having these touchy feely like sessions that can get emotional. But, you know, I think on the other hand, it helps you sort of grow and better understand how to, you know, deal with conflict and, and, Mm -hmm. and, 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 and communicate with, with people in a more effective way. And so that's what we've instituted at our fund. Um, We, have, um, they're, you know, more, more or less informal, but, you know, him and I can have touchy feely sessions. We have it with our central team together as a group in London, yeah. as well as even with our more junior colleagues, our analysts mm-hmm. and student investment partners, you know, we have something we, that we call Q15s where at any point, you know, if anyone wants to have the 15 minute chat about right. frustration or a problem or wants to communicate feedback, they can do it. And they just say, I, I want to have a Q15 with you. 
And so it's really nurturing this, this openness of a culture where mm-hmm. no one should ever feel like they're not being heard. Or if they do have a problem with something that someone said or did, it's an open platform of communication where they don't feel like they will be silenced. Um, and so I think on all three of those fronts, you know, me and him having our individual one, the group one with our central team, as well as with the broader organization, it just, yeah, it just really has this nice feeling that, you know, if there's a problem or, you know, if I did something that maybe I didn't realize I did that maybe offended someone or, or what have you, you know, someone will tell me. It's also, yeah. kind of, I hate touchy feeling in the sense that I, before having that talk on my heart, yeah. being like, oh no, you're, what's going to, what's like going to be so said? Nervous. Did I do something yeah, wrong? Like, what did I do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then after that, yeah, the whole point is to have it and then, you know, yeah. you kind of just make up and hug at the end yeah. and you move on with your life. So I think, I think with that, I think it builds just a really strong partnership um, mm-hmm. and also just culture of an mm-hmm. organization that I think just promotes just healthy growth um, if it's if it's institutionalized very well. No, I'm so impressed with that because to this exact point, right before these sessions, regardless of how practiced you are, I feel like you're like, I at least am always nervous. Machin and I have these. And even if we've had the best week ever, I'm always like, oh, maybe I did something that I didn't realize that hit you the wrong way that now you're upset about that you like, but you always are nervous. But I always feel like after these sessions, you always just feel closer to the person. I think it's about the communication and the trust and vulnerability and sharing And I think it's really important to practice that. It doesn't come very naturally, I don't think, to most folks. And Mm -hmm. it's really impressive that you've been able to institute that in your culture. Speaking of which, tell us a little bit about the fund. Sure. Um, So Deep Tech, um, which I explained a little bit what that means before. I mean, it's quite broad. What does it mean? What is Deep? It's one of these Uh, phrases that everyone's excited about now, like AI or virtual reality. So what exactly is Deep Tech? Yeah. What makes it deep? What um, There's a science or engineering, you know, co-founder expertise, usually at the PhD level. So mm-hmm. someone PhD in AI from University College London or, you know, did a PhD in, let's say, genomics. Um, so it's it's taking some fundamental, you know, understanding that most people don't have and building a company to solve a problem um, that the world mm-hmm. needs addressing. So for us, that's anything in, you know, life sciences or health tech or med tech that can go into the climate tech arena, that can go mm-hmm. into like industrial tech or, you know, advanced manufacturing that can go mm-hmm. into, um, you know, infrastructure um, sort of type of applications. Um, yeah. Like you said, anything around sort of artificial intelligence or machine learning applications for any sort of industry or anything mm-hmm. around sort of the, the next, you know, evolution of natural language processing, all that's within scope. Um, mm-hmm. And so, even to a lesser degree, Web3 and creator economy, but we do see some deals there that would be relevant and we could maybe make a case that it is deep tech, depending on, you know, what's, what's, you know, type of product is being built. And so that's kind of high level. And a lot of that, mm-hmm. you know, unsurprisingly, it's being born out of university innovation. So it's going to be PhDs finishing their degree saying, I've been studying this for years. I see this huge pain point in the market. I'm going to build this company to address this or postdocs yeah. or to a lesser extent, even sometimes professors thinking about leaving their posts to build and yeah. commercialize, you know, their research or their, or their expertise, you know, with the company. So for us, that's how, you know, the fund is set up to invest in these companies being born out of university innovation. And so mm-hmm. because of that, you know, we're structured in, in a different way than most VC funds. So 
we have our main central team in London, which is myself, Jamie, and also our director of operations um, and our chairman. And then mm -hmm. we have what we call student investment partners or student analysts. So see, these are current PhD students in most cases. We also have a few master's and bachelor degree students at the analyst yep. level that yep. are still doing their degrees, but on a part-time basis, you know, they're embedded, you know, at this point in time across 28 university campuses in the, in the UK. So Oxford, yeah. Edinburgh, Nottingham, Queens University, Belfast, everywhere you can think of, we have that coverage. Um, and mm -hmm. they're sourcing companies, you know, in their local ecosystem. But then, you know, if it's a relevant deal that we're looking at, like, let's say, I don't know anything about biotech. So if we're looking yeah. at a deal in like, I don't know, in bio, I'm going to call up one, <laughs> of the P one of our PhDs that's doing a PhD in virology or something, whatever the deal right. you know needs. And, you know, mm -hmm. he or she will really be able to run that technical diligence and say, actually, mm -hmm. there's really something here we should be taking this seriously. And, you know, mm -hmm. and then at the central team, we're more so evaluating it for its commercial um, and merits and, and, and venture backability. It's a really nice setup. Um, we're taking that right now, which, you know, 20 portfolio companies in Europe or sorry, in the UK and expanding and growing into Europe as we speak. So putting people on the ground and having a presence across, you know, probably by, by the end of this year, five to seven um, new sort of deep tech hubs on the continent, mm -hmm. I think is, is really, really exciting just to continue wow. to drive kind of that, that model, but also, you know, build up kind of that more geographic, you know, I guess, um, footprint. First of all, that's very exciting. If you're expanding to about seven hubs, that's wild. You guys must be very, very busy. But also I love what you mentioned kind of about your, the PhDs or the, the students that are studying this technology at the institutions that you use to help you with your deep dives. And my understanding is this isn't, this is not very common in the industry. I think you guys are treating them as more partners as opposed to just scouts. That's also fascinating. How did that come about? How has that model been going for you guys? Yeah, so it's it's originally based off of the U.S. Dorm Room Fund um, in the U.S., ah. um, but you know we're quite different because the U.S. Dorm Room Fund you know invests in you know bachelor degree students right. building a new right. consumer and this app. Is deep tech. And this is more mm -hmm. deep tech focused on PhDs, so it's it's a yeah. it's a different take on the model, but it's very much um, you know um, started based on kind of that broader model that was in the U.S., which was brought to Europe with more of a mm -hmm. PhD deep tech focus. So, you know, to date, we're in, we're in, we just closed Fund 2 earlier this year, back in April. So Congrats. today, yeah, it's really exciting. So I think that validates, you know, the, the model in the sense that you're able to, you know, have your second fund mm -hmm. um, set up, starting to deploy the capital. It's still too mm -hmm. early to tell because venture is a very, very long game. So we still yeah. have a lot more investments to make, you know, you know, three years in. So, you know, you still right. start realizing exits usually until year five or six or seven or eight. And so, you know, mm -hmm. it's still very much, you know, time to really validate that thesis, but there's data points that, that, you know, say, yeah, there's really something here. And so I think that's very yeah. exciting. What's the size of this fund? This is fund two. Yeah. And yeah, fund the size is, and what, what yeah. are your check sizes that you're writing? Oh yeah. Thanks for reminding me. I was like, started to talk <laughs> so much. It was like, no, this is great. <laughs> uh, fun, <laughs> great. Fun, fun two is a little over 20 million us dollars. Um, Amazing. And we're writing checks between 150 thousand pounds sterling to about 600 pounds sterling. Oh, wow. Okay. And are you guys first, first check in? Yeah. So typically if we're investing at the pre-seed, we like to be okay. the first institutional fund and like to lead the round. And then we'll probably okay. syndicate with, you know, an angel or a few angels. If mm -hmm. we do a seed stage deal, because we also invest seed, typically mm -hmm. based on the round dynamics, we wouldn't lead. We could maybe lead depending 
you know, how much the company is raising or co-lead, mm-hmm. but also happy to syndicate, you know, with a really strong fund or, you know, an angel syndicate, et cetera. So um, we have a combination of leading rounds and not leading rounds and, and that's pre-seed seed. Awesome. And then let's say I'm a, a the most impressive PhD student you've come across at Oxford. Uh, and I'm working on some really exciting technology. Maybe I'm solving the cure for cancer. Uh, why, why should I go with Creator Fund? Ah, that's a very good question because we're awesome. No, I, uh... <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a, it's a lot of different things. Um, you know, number one, the network. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have at any given time, um, 40, 35 to 40 PhDs, masters working with us. And then mm-hmm. once in these, you know, individuals are with us two to three years, and then they go on and become great investors or academics or, you know, building their own companies. And so we have this huge alumni base and current yeah. you know, cohort that, you know, this individual can, can draw on, um, in mm-hmm. terms of, um, you know, sounding board in terms of, um, thinking about how do I start a company or thinking about, you know, how, how should I deal or interact with an investor? They can tap into that network. Um, oftentimes too, our cohort of students, many of them, it's I think it's close to 50%, if not over 50% end up landing in one of our portfolio companies or, or getting placed. Mm-hmm. And so from a talent acquisition standpoint um, for, you know, companies that do become our portfolio companies, yeah, we can really help drive, you know, key talent, placement for them because we've worked with these individuals, you know, they're obviously very smart and capable and have really good experience on the venture side, but also, you know, on Mm -hmm. the science and then technology side as well. So that's really, really big. Um, And then I would say between Jamie and myself, um, you know, we have a lot of experience in building strong syndicates with top tier investors. So having worked in venture myself in Silicon Valley and in Berlin and London and Jamie in Silicon Mm -hmm. Valley and in London, I mean, we, we have that network to really, you know, set this company up for success in terms of yeah. the signaling that the venture world lives and thrives off of um, in terms yeah. of having this investor lead you around or having this angel on your cap table. You know, we're yeah. very much in our capacity to, to make that happen as well, too. So I would say, you know, from a creator and we're growing and scaling. So I think just from a brand recognition standpoint, if you get the creator fund investment coming out of Oxford, that does say something. Because we're very, yeah. we're very, um, I guess, um, diligent in our diligence, um, and so we don't mm-hmm. obviously invest in every company, and we only invest mm-hmm. in companies that we think are going to be the next, you know, decacorn. The combination of all those different things, it's 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 a, it's a very appealing, you know, proposition. And you're also quite unique in your thesis. I don't think yeah. there's are, are there other VCs that are and have thesis. this thesis. Right. I would say not at the scale that we do in Europe. Yeah, so I think you're specialized and obviously really care about the work that you're doing and the impact. In terms of teams, what are some of the attributes of the strongest teams you've invested in? Let's say I am looking for funding, I'm working on deep tech. What makes a great team in your experience pattern recognition wise? Yeah, I think the best teams are the, the ones that are hungry. And so mm-hmm. what I've noticed between the U.S. and Europe is, you know, if you're in Palo Alto and running around and talking to someone wanting to build a company, you know, this person is convinced they're going to change the world with what they're building and they're, yeah. they're, they're not going to settle for anything less. And I think, mm. I think that ambition level is a bit muted in Europe in the sense that, you know, in Palo Alto, everyone wants to build a unicorn. I think in, yeah. in Europe, a lot of European founders are happy to exit at, you know, maybe 40 million, which is great, yeah. you know, for yeah. anyone that's able to exit for that is great. 
for a venture yeah. investor, that's not so great because, you know, we, we're in the business of driving returns for the fund and mm-hmm. returning that money back to our investors. But I think, I think the level of appetite is a bit different. And so I, I think the best founders that I've seen, you know, on both sides of the pond are ones that are hungry, that really want yeah. to day in and day out, just build this company. Even if they have yeah. an opportunity to exit early, they say no, because I should yeah. be the one really executing on this vision and I'm going to take it mm-hmm. all the way. But then also people that are um, coachable. So, you know, if, if you're an arrogant founder, I don't think personally that you'll go very far because there's a lot that mm-hmm. you learn. Even if you're a serial entrepreneur, there's always something that you need to, to learn from someone else. And so, yeah. you know, having that level, level of coachability alongside that ambition, I think is very, very important. Um, and I think because we invest in deep tech and very much PhDs, um, you know, I, I think the EQ has never been something that they really focus on in their career. And so for me, the trifecta is then that person having that 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 selling ability, being able to yeah. pitch their company and get me just bought in and say, wow, yeah. this is going to be the next, you know, Apple. Um, and so yeah. I think if you can really, you know, have that ambition level, that Silicon Valley ambition level, being able to be in constant growth mindset, as well yeah. as, you know, I think being able to just really effectively sell and pitch what you're building yeah. your idea. That's like the best founders that I've come across and that do yeah. exceptionally well. So this makes me think of something which I believe Europe is is behind the US when it comes to number of unicorns or even startups that are coming out of universities, right? We have Facebook, we have Snapchat, many others that aren't coming to mind right now. Whereas I think maybe Europe is behind the US. I bring this up to say with this ambition, you have European founders are exiting at maybe 40 million. Do you feel like that's an education thing? Do you feel like European founders or university students just need to learn more about this? Are you taking part in that education or is it a couple other factors that you're seeing on the ground? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good question. I think it's a combination of a few things. So, you know, at Stanford, because Stanford has just had wild success in building or spinning out great companies, you know, as a student there, you have inspiration. You have someone to look to. You're like, if they, if they did it, I can do it too. And I think that can't be understated. And so, you know, a lot of European universities just don't have that in terms of an alumni base or, you know, current students, they don't have that, you know, alum that they can, you know, hit up for a coffee and say, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, you inspire me. And so I think yeah. that's, a, that's a function of just, you know, ecosystem and building it, those network effects over time, which I would argue yeah. that's happening in the UK, like around Cambridge, for example, at, a, at an accelerated rate. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, I also just, you know, I think... The U.S. is much more of a homogenous market and so and big market. And so when you're you're in it, you kind of just think bigger. Whereas I think if you're in a smaller market, it's not that you don't think big, but it's kind of, you know, limited by by the market that you're selling into as well, too. And so Mm -hmm. I think then it's kind of just that mindset of, okay, maybe I will initially build the company here. But then how do I I internationalize and grow this to like. So I think it's also kind of um, like that you know, mental kind of as well too. Right. Um, right. And then I think it's just, you know, I think it's just the appetite, I think is just maybe just different. Um, you know, I think for, for Americans, we're very capitalists and we're like, you know, we're gonna make a lot of money. And I think in Europe, <laughs> it's, that's not so much the case. It's, it's more it's about more the so, culture. And yeah. The, the culture yeah. and like, <laughs> the you things know, we like love having, as you know, preserving like a, a, you know, really nice way <laughs> of life. So I think, yeah, I think that, that, I think that plays into it as well too, a little bit. 
Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I'm eager to watch that ecosystem evolve. I love having this conversation with you. Hopefully some founders at universities can get inspired to dream bigger and can hit you up for a coffee or a chat and, and learn more. And I'm sure this will continue to progress in future. The other things you mentioned, coachability, totally agree about how important that is. It's like, we're all works in progress and you never know everything. And it's about being open to that learning and growth. And then the, the last thing feels a bit harder for me to pinpoint, you know, like this ability to sell. We have people like Steve Jobs that can probably sell a pen to me with 20 pens already where I don't need a pen. So what have you seen? How can someone learn that or practice the sales aspect of being this sparkly person who can sell you anything? Yeah. So I, I think that's a great question. I think it comes down to the act of storytelling. So mm. um, I'm a big fan of getting a founder in front of you know, someone or even, you know, myself in some cases is how do you craft a really good story? And a lot of it is, you know, thinking about how do I build mm -hmm. this narrative around my company and why it needs to exist in the world and why I'm mm -hmm. the person or we are the people to do it. And so I think it's, I don't think of it in terms of selling the idea. I think it's more so the, the craft or the art of, of building a story around, you know, mm -hmm. why you're doing it and why you should do it. So I know that's a kind of a very ambiguous maybe type of answer. No, but that getting, makes sense. Without getting into details, but that's, I think, number one. And then, you know, I think num number two, because um, I have given presentations around selling your idea. And I think a lot of times people underestimate um, kind of the power of irrefutability. And I think the best, you know, you know, founders aren't necessarily jumping in saying, this is the problem we need to solve. They actually say, I see this in the world happening. I see this in the world happening. I see this in the world happening. They're like, oh, okay, I can't really refute that. Yeah, therefore mm -hmm. I have this really cool product. Actually, and then, you know, me as the customer says, actually, I actually need that because everything you've just yeah. said is irrefutable. And why am I not doing it? You know, when, you know, my competitor down the street clearly is, and you're just, you're informing yeah. me about this. So I think, I think that's the other aspect in terms of sort of mm -hmm. the framing of, of such. Um, but then yeah. also, I think a lot of it is, is in how you speak and how you communicate and how you make eye contact with people and how you undulate your voice and, 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 you know, how you think about your body movements. And a lot of that, I think can be learned through coaching if it's not you mm -hmm. know natural to someone. And I'm a big fan of like, you know, coaches in this, in this way, especially if the person is just not used to doing it or doesn't care to, um, cause mm -hmm. I think the art of just people interaction is very, very important. Um, and that's something I love doing. I just love interacting with people. And so I, I think, know. <laughs> <laughs> so just like, you know, it's like anything that can be done to like, you know, yeah. you know enable someone to do that more effectively. Yeah, uh, is you're just selling. You, if you sell yourself, yeah. you're going to be able to sell your company. Yeah, and, and people and are that buying makes into sense. you. Yeah, because you not only need to raise money to be able to build your product, but you also need to convince people to go get on this mission and journey with you, where it's not all sunshine and roses and butterflies. There are going to be hard days, days when you're grinding. That's the typical day of a startup, and. It's about convincing those people and show not convincing them in a way that's manipulative, but just like getting them on board with, hey, this is why it's worth it. And this is why it's worth waking up every day on, on this journey together. Um, and then finally, to your point, showing the world why, why this product matters and why it's different and why they should use it. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that makes sense. All right. And then 
your favorite parts about working here today, I know are how you really enjoy building. Uh, before we transition out, I wanted to really tangibly get a sense of what is your day to day? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's uh, quite loaded, which I really, really love. So I'll talk to a handful of startups um, that are promising that our team thinks we should really be moving on in terms of diligence, be running, mm -hmm. you know, with um, my colleagues diligence on maybe one or two companies at a time, which means evaluating kind of the market opportunity and how they're positioning the, their product in the market and the defensibility of that product. And, you know, how well is the team executing, you know, is mm -hmm. this team really the team to be executing on this idea and this vision? So at any given time, we're evaluating a few deals for, for investment. Um, mm -hmm. And then further, I guess, up the pipeline, it's initial calls with founders to see if it's a company that we should be moving. So that's part of it. We have 20 portfolio companies. So at any given time, we'll have a portfolio company raising their next round, or there is some type of crisis that needs to be dealt with. Um, and so, you know, part of the day um, during the week is engaging with the portfolio companies that I'm managing or, or looking after. Like, for mm -hmm. example, one of our portfolio companies is just kicking off a Series A raise um, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Big part of my week will be working with that team on, you know, that effective, you know, raise strategy, as well as investor introductions, et cetera. Um, and then at Creator Fund, we have 71 LPs. Um, so, you know, Jamie in particular is, you know, making sure, you know, our LPs are happy. We are constantly, you know, emailing them, making sure that they're engaged and know what we're up to. So that's, that's a big part of it. And then just being a fund manager, which maybe isn't as fun of the job as compliance related stuff. And, and all the these admin. things at the admin. Um, and I think, especially at the partner level, that's something I underestimated, but that can take quite a bit of time up um, during the week, depending on what's trying to get done. And then I would say also, um, I, I always try to think outside of the deal making, which is we're fun. We have to be investing. That's the number one thing. Our portfolio needs to succeed. So I'm always probably doing something with respect to portfolio during the day. Um, and then um, it's always thinking about kind of the, the frivols. So the marketing, the content strategy, partnership strategy, you know, these are things that I'll try to spend a little time on during the day. And if I don't get to it, like on a particular day, definitely during the week to sort of yeah. build, you know, that creator friend brand going forward. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite um, dynamic, mixed. dynamic, mixed, talking to a lot of people, you know, and then obviously there's like a lot of internal meetings with the team to make sure we're on the, on the same page with respect to companies mm -hmm. we're looking at or, you know, and also recruiting and mentorship. So because we're working yeah. with 35 to 40 PhDs, a lot of, you know, not a lot, but a big part of my time, probably quarter of my time during the week is, you know, making sure that they're learning how to be an effective venture investor, uh, you know, that they are, you know, getting their questions or concerns answered. So that's, that's part of mm -hmm. my job as well, too. I love what you mentioned about mentorship, that you're still taking the time to give back and train and support others for the people that are looking to break in. And we've kind of touched on this a little bit. Sounds like network is important. You mentioned building that for folks that don't necessarily have access to their network, being more of a go-getter, building those relationships, proving yourself, showing the hard work and diligence. What's a piece of advice that you've heard a lot of in terms of breaking into venture that's completely wrong? <laughs> oh man. Um, I mean, I've heard that like, you know, getting into going into banking first, coming out of undergrad okay, and then right. going into like private equity and then, then from private equity going into, I, I just yeah, think that's, that's, the the that's a crazy route into venture and I actually don't yeah. think it's the strongest profile in the sense mm -hmm. of if you did do it, that's great. But I think 
having more experience on the product side or building company side or, you know, something where you're intimately familiar. And this is, goes for early stage investing, not necessarily growth stage or growth equity. For early stage uh-huh. investing, I think is, is more valuable. Um, and uh-huh. so people that, you know, I think venture, anyone that says, you know, you have to do this and this and this to break into venture, venture is the exact opposite. It's the most opaque industry, inefficient industry on the planet, I think. And a lot of it's just like mm-hmm. talking to people, networking, showing your value, your interests. I've sourced these companies. Yeah. I think you should be investing in this company for X, Y, and Z reasons. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I built I built this CRM tool to better manage your your startups or your, your deal flow. Like there's so many yeah. different ways to show value to a fund yeah. that mm-hmm. I think that's actually more appealing than maybe just this very traditional path, which yeah. there's not so many venture investing roles. And so going that traditional path, there's no guarantee of success. I think really take, take a little bit more ownership around sort yep. of getting into front of specific people and individuals and building mm-hmm. that network, um, I think is a more valuable and more, I guess, um, and not an easier way because it is tough regardless, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it makes more sense, I guess, in terms of yeah. you know, maybe breaking in. I imagine it also differentiates you, right? Mm-hmm. Because if so many people have this particular background, you stand out in the crowd. If you are able to come to a VC fund or partner and show, hey, I can help your startups in this way, or I was able to, by showing this initiative, get access to these types of deals, or I've developed this type of pattern recognition, and here's my track record or whatnot. What you did with the partner in Berlin, where you just flew out and you told them, hey, I'm really interested. I'd love to be considered. And and obviously the hard work that you put in. Excited to watch you guys progress with Creator Fund. In closing, Jeremy, I wanted to ask you a question. What matters most to you and why? Oh, yeah, that's a really great question. I haven't thought about that question since my (laughs) MBA application. It's great. And it it definitely has evolved. I would say what matters to me most and why now is, and, and, you know, we're all older now, right? Yeah. Our position and our standing in the world and what we can give back is, has changed as well too with age um, and with mm-hmm. pro- career progression. So I think what matters to me most and why is I think making sure that I play a pivotal role in the future of our society um, in a positive way. And so for me, that's investing in really great founders and companies, but then also I think kind of going back to this, you know, helping, you know, the younger generation, which I find very inspiring yeah, um, to feel like they, they can change the world, that they can have, you know, a pivotal, you know, piece in making yeah. sure that in 2100, we're all not, you know, living in the Arctic because we can't live anywhere else or something like this. Um, and so, yeah. so I think, I think that's what, that's what matters to me most. I think it's kind of this, this combination of, having my part in enabling the future, um, but then also making sure that the people that will be around when I'm not around, to feel like that they, they, ha- they can be inspired in some way um, and, mm-hmm. and aren't, aren't cut out of a opportunity because they look a certain way or talk a certain way or, or come from a, from a certain place. And so I think that resonates with me a lot now. That's so beautiful. That resonates with me too. All right, my dear, this was amazing to have you. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing. I really enjoyed being here. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, we'll have you back anytime. Okay, I'm excited. Anytime, give me a call. You know where to find me.